All right, all right, all right. Let's get fired up here. Maximum freedom. Read. <laughs> well, hello and welcome to the Actual Anarchy Podcast. This is that podcast where we talk about movies from a Rothbardian anarcho-capitalist perspective, and we've been doing this for a couple of years now. We're all the way up to episode 177 tonight, and it's going to be Soylent Green with a returning guest. Uh, and you can find the show notes more at actualanarchy.com slash 177. Before we get into the last night's portion show, which is where we do introduce our guest, uh, I'm going to hold you in suspense a little bit longer so that we can check in with my co-host, Robert Johnson, who runs Trubster.com, where he does artwork, but he also runs a Thai restaurant that is still functioning despite the COVID-19 madness. Yeah, what's up, Dilly D? I still do that. Both of those things you said are accurate. You are correct. And we are turning the corner. I think the worst is behind us. The uh, customers are coming back. They are enjoying the service we provide. I think our customers are deciding that we are an essential service. So that's exciting. And you should be excited because I'm excited. I'm excited. I've been very happy to see you guys posting like, hey, we're open today. And I, I even did a few wows. And uh, I think I posted a um, a meme recently that was like the the girl in the car seat who like has the kind of weird face. And it's like, this is how long we've been on lockdown. And it's like grown woman wearing the same purple shirt. Yeah, I like that one. That's good. <laughs> I was trying to, I was considering doing something a little bit more, I don't know, racy or political. Uh, but I didn't think Daniel, that this that is my professional. This is this is you can't just have be like your your dumb memes and your your internet stuffs. You can't troll my official commercial account. This is this is where my customers come to interact with this service, this professional business. I know, and I, I've been holding back. I, I do send you the occasional meme from time to time, uh, but I also send probably ten times the amount of memes to uh, our boy Mike C, who's been a guest many times. Uh, but uh, he uh, he has an appetite for the uh shall we say the more edge cases <laughs> the guy's a beast he's always fun to have on for sure yeah and we'll be having him on again soon uh and we have had uh this guest coming up on the last hour's portion of the show on at least once before he is also a patreon supporter so if you guys want to uh also join in supporting what we do here you can hit us up at actualenergy.com says patreon you'll get a full half hour of pre-show bonus content where we've been talking with our guest dr dennis foster who was on for the day the earth stood still and uh, we will introduce him right after these messages introducing the last nighters portion of the show. Hey everybody, it's Daniel Elwood and Robert Johnson, and we are The Last Nighters, and we can be found on the Launchpad Media, where they're always launching, launching new ideas in your direction. Check it out at thelaunchpadmedia.com. However, comma, uh, the most recent show that they have from us is, uh, I think, from February. So I think the um, the pandemic has maybe uh, slowed down the process of of loading our shows to to their, uh, oh, no. their network. But eventually, this will get on there. It just won't be as timely. But this is going to be episode 120 of the show. You can find the show notes more at lastnighters.com/slash/120. We're going to be talking about Soylent Green, 
with our friend and previous guest, Dr. Dennis Foster. He was on with us um, almost a year ago, I want to say, for The Day the Earth Stood Still. There's a very loose connection between this episode and that episode and our prior episode. This is going to be our Charlton Heston versus Richard Burton Battle Royale Highlander episode where there can be only one greatest actor of the 1950s, 60s, or 70s, uh, when they were both very active. Also, though, the guy who played Klaatu in The Day the Earth Stood Still was Peter in The Robe that we just did with the Anarcho-Christian last week for Easter's. Uh, and tonight is um, actually for the 50th anniversary of Earth Day, which uh, happened August or April 13, 1970, I want to say. And I'm sure our guest, I don't want to, I don't want to date you, but um, you probably are familiar with that period of time. It was a little bit before my day. But welcome to the show, Dennis. Uh, I don't think I could have introduced you any uh, worse than I just did. <laughs> oh, no, that was great. Uh, and in fact, I have a yellow sticky tab right here on my computer that says that I was here May 14th to talk about the day the earth stood still. So I guess not much has changed in my life because it hasn't moved. Well, so you had a, a reminder to do the show 11 months ago, uh, and now we're, we're back with you again. Well, thanks for joining us. I do remember that the uh, episode with you before was really good. I know Robert was like, I didn't really care for the movie all that much, but the <laughs> was totally worth it. Well, and, and here's a, a little side story. Uh, one of my former students, probably six or seven years after she graduated, uh, sent me an email and said, just, I want to thank you about uh, the class because you opened me up to, you know, some of these libertarian ideas and she's become more of a libertarian, loves Tom Woods and all that kind of stuff. And so it's like, oh, that's great. And we've touched bases a couple of times. And uh, I got an email from her. Well, I guess it was like a, you know, last summer or something. She goes, I heard you on the radio. You were talking about a movie or I heard you on the internet. You were talking about a movie, you know, talking about the day the earth stood still. And I thought, well, that's pretty cool. Hey, we got another list. That's awesome. Yeah, yeah. We get around, Robert. Who knew? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. We, we were probably like cashing in on your name. You know, we were name yeah. dropping you and people are like, oh, yeah, we'll check that one out. <laughs> oh, well, calling all trolls. Yeah. Well, thanks again for uh, for coming on. And uh, I think this is another going to be another really good discussion on a movie that probably isn't the greatest, but uh, it's got interesting themes and a lot of stuff going on into it. And um, I, in watching this, I was like, okay, Dennis, you, you suggested this probably three, four months ago. And I'm like, holy crap. In watching it the other night, I'm like, I'm so glad he suggested this because it's like leading up to what 2022, which is when the film is based, what it might look like, you know, if we keep on this trajectory of quarantine and like destroying the economy. Yeah. Yeah. Bell bottoms on everybody. It's gonna be <laughs> horrific. Everybody's going to be sweaty with neckerchiefs on and technology is going to take a giant dump. Great video games called computer oh. space i think it was yeah hey, you know I, I heard that was the very first appearance of a video game in a movie so it's like a big deal that was and apparently was an actual i mean they were actually trying to sell that it was before pong which seems incredible but uh hmm. yeah yeah now this, this came out in 73 so they probably filmed it 71 72 some pre-planning pre-production kind of stuff was probably late 60s um to 1970 now earth day was 1970 and this movie well, okay, I'm, I'm jumping ahead. We usually do the Google description before this. But this movie had a very big um, opening uh, montage of photos from human civilization to, you know, industrial age uh, to man the garbage can being terrible and destroying the environment. So this seemed to have a very um, leftist uh, watermelon bent to it uh, to coincide with the Earth Day green movement and, and all of that. 
Um, yeah, so, well, it was humans bad, but it was very vague as to why he, it didn't explain why humans bad. It's just like, yeah, we're garbage producers or something. Yeah, it seems, it seems it like a, we can't we can't fix our own problems. Yeah, and and we're we're destroying the ocean, so the soylent green can no longer be made of uh, seaweed or kelp or whatever it was going to be or plankton. Plankton. Yeah, we're going to be sleeping in stairways for some reason. Yeah, so there's a, like overpopulation thing. There's like a Malthusian thing. There's a Paul Ehrlich thing. So lots of stuff. But why don't we get into the Google description before we uh, get too carried away here? So this came out, uh, like we were saying, 1973, May 9th, 1973. The director is Richard Fleischer. Story by Harry Harrison. Uh, screenplay by Stanley R. Greenberg. And a box office of $3.6 million. Uh, that's from Rentals, apparently. So back when Blockbuster was around. Uh, Southern Green, 1973, sci-fi slash sci-fi per Google, one hour, 37 minutes, 7.1 IMDb, 71% Rod Tomatoes, 66% Metacritic, and 83% of Google users like it. The description reads, in a densely overpopulated and starving New York of the future, NYPD detective Robert Thorne, played by Charlton Heston, investigates the murder of an executive at rations manufacturer Soylent Corporation. With the help of elderly academic Solomon Saul Roth, played by Edward G. Robinson in his final role, he died a few weeks later, uh, Thorne begins to make real progress until the governor mysteriously pulls the plug. Obsessed with mystery, Thorne steps out from behind the badge and launches his own investigation into the murder. So that is the description. I'll go to Robert for your reaction and opening information before we go to our guest, Dennis. Well, I, I want to say that it's kind of sad that we've got this film starring Chuck Heston and apparently Richard Burton. We got it down to those two candidates. Those are the two finalists in the top best actor of the 50s, 60s, and 70s. I don't know how that happened. But I guess this is where we're at. Uh, yeah, this film, you said sci-fi slash sci-fi? Okay. That's what it reads. Yeah, sci-fi slash sci-fi. So I, I, subset of sci-fi? I don't know. I don't know. Uh, it, I love these kind of dystopian future movies, especially these low-budget ones where the future is... I mean, they don't even try in this film. I and mean, the most they do is, what, put like football helmets, spray paint them silver on the cops for their riot uniforms, and then spray paint stuff like all the same color. So like like the garbage trucks were like orange or something. And I guess that's kind of futuristic. -y. And I mean, it, it's so not even trying, but I do, I do appreciate that women become furniture in this future. This is, this is, this is something to look forward to. Yeah. Yeah. That was like my favorite part of the movie. And I'm going to just show my misogyny here. Mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. But the, uh, the main furniture was uh, played by Lee Taylor young. And uh, you know, for a 75 year old lady, I'd buy she, that house. She still looks pretty good. I'd buy that house. All right. So, uh, Dennis, uh, let's get your reaction to uh, the description and what Robert had to say and where, wherever you want to take us from there. Uh, yes. I, uh, I mean, it's a, it's been a favorite of mine from, for a long time. It's, it's not what you would call a, uh, a well acted movie or scripted movie, or as Robert was really saying, they, they did, they apparently had no money for, uh, for the sets. Uh, everybody looks like they work in a, uh, uh, in a newspaper uh, factory. You know, they all got the little hats on and they aren't quite wearing uniforms, but they all kind of look the same. Uh, but the, uh, but the cast is great. You got Joseph Cotton in there, even though he's not in there for very long. Uh, as a kid, I, uh, loved, uh, Chuck Connors and, uh, uh, an old TV show called the rifleman. So it was, it was great to see him, uh, him in there. Uh, Edward G. Robinson is, as you mentioned, was, uh, this was his last movie. In fact, he died, I think it was 10 days after filming the last scene that he's actually in uh, in the film. Uh, and, and there were a couple of other people 
that were uh, pretty well known. Brock Peters was in there. It's, they had uh, a couple of black actors, uh, Brock Peters as his uh, boss, uh, the lieutenant. And then they had uh, Paula Kelly as the uh, girlfriend to uh, Chuck Connors, uh, which seems a little bit um, pushing the envelope for 1973, maybe, uh, or maybe just responding to that particular time. Uh, I do think that it's a, it really is a period piece. Uh, five years later, it'd be hard to make that. Um, it was right after Earth Day. There was, I mean, you mentioned Ehrlich. You know, the population bomb was like well-received. This is, you know, just modern day Malthus. And this is the way things are going to go. And well, we've seen that that's not the way things are going to go. They're really going to go the way of the matrix, right? We know that's what's really going to happen. So, yeah. uh, so this idea that, you know, it's going to be like Soylent Green is is uh, more far-fetched, I would say, in that particular regard. And well, and just as a side note, I I was in high school during the first Earth Day, and we had a uh, an assembly in the in the auditorium, and I was one of the participants to extol the virtues of Earth Day. I I don't remember anything about what I said or what I did, but I remember being part of that. Okay, and, and you have since repented for this. Today, I throw batteries away, I throw plastic away, I throw glass away because I've seen Mad Max, and that's what those people will need. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> Yeah, so so Thinking I was in the future. Good job, Dennis. <laughs> I was with you until the part where you were like, "We're going to actually head down more like the Matrix." Uh, I would have thought the same beyond a month ago, but the last month has made me think that Soylent Green might be where we're actually headed. Uh, I really identified with the the what sweatiness, real, what real food tasted like, when you could actually get meat, and when you could actually get uh, you know strawberry preserves. I mean, instead of like five hundred dollars or five hundred Ds uh, for a little jar of it. You know, it really feels that way right now. And, and it, it's kind of amazing how these little tiny comforts that you used to just take for granted are now so much more important. You know, my my wife and I, we try to tell our kids for the longest time, like, hey, you guys have no idea how good you have it. We, my wife and I separately, we grew up poor. Like we didn't have this abundance of things always available to us whenever we wanted it. And we could complain and whine that it isn't like this color or that big or that small or whatever, you know, Uh but now, now they're kind of like experiencing it. I mean, we're trying to insulate them as much as possible. We've kind of been prepper-ish, prepper-esque uh, in a lot of ways. So we're, we're probably a little bit more insulated than we would uh, normally, people would normally be. But in a way, I, I want my kids to like experience this adversity so that when things do recover, they have an appreciation for things. Because it is, it is small comforts that are big, a big deal. I remember in the pre-show content, I was telling you guys about being able to order toilet paper on Costco. It took me three weeks of trying. It still hasn't even arrived yet, but it felt like I won the freaking lottery being able to actually get the order to go through. I mean, that was like a little victory. I did a little dance. You know, you can tell your grandkids about this hardship, Daniel, in about 30 years. Hey, don't belittle me. <laughs> no, it, if, if they continue this, I mean, things are going to get harder than it is right now. We're still on the leading edge of this, I think. You know, like 30 million people are going to be unemployed probably by next week. Uh, and if they continue these lockdowns for much longer, uh, and I know, I know it is state by state. And Trump just last night said that he's like God emperor and can do whatever he wants, whenever he wants, no matter what. So, you know, that threw everyone into a tizzy. But uh, if they continue this this disruption in, I mean, I, I'm not looking at like the bounce back being very quick. I mean, you still have this lost time, this lost production, this lost standard of living. You have people in India starving right now because there's no way to transport food into the cities. You know, there's all sorts of like terrible things that are going to come to light um, and, and whether like there's an awareness that it's connected to this 
coronavirus pandemic hysterics or not, it's going to be, um, I think, a, a learning, <laughs> a learning moment. I, I hope it ends up being a time where people finally realize, like, hey, the government really screwed the pooch on this. Uh, maybe those libertarians who are like, hey, maybe less government m- might be a good idea. Uh, maybe they're onto something, but I, I kind of doubt it. Um, let's get your take on that, Robert. Yeah, I would highly doubt that that is their takeaway. These are people that ad hom us at every chance and straw man us every argument. They don't understand what libertarianism is. Uh, I, I'd, I'd be shocked if if that was the takeaway. Uh, no matter what argument you throw at them, there's always a million, you know, but what abouts? So I can't imagine this is going to be the one that'll finally bring them around. Maybe for those people that are on the edge that do already see a few strong arguments on the libertarian side, this will lead them more towards us. But I don't know if, I, I think the answer for the average statist is going to be, well, we needed more statism or better statism. Faster and in, in my brand of it instead bigger, of- Bigger, faster, stronger. The big orange yeah. guy brand with, of it. With, yeah, the people that I want in charge, in charge. So, which is yeah. almost always the takeaway. There was- um. Scott Horton was on uh, part of the problem with Dave Smith, and he mentioned a survey that was done for this article in The Atlantic, and there were like eight unconstitutional measures, or they were very, you know, very borderline constitutional based on current day interpretations of what's constitutional. So they were definitely unconstitutional. Uh, but a majority of people said, yes, they support every single one of them. Uh, some of them were seizing businesses entirely. Some of them were like suspending habeas corpus and uh, all sorts of things. I mean, a lot of these things have already like actually happened and they're happening now. Uh, and it just went to show me and it, it was probably reflected in our previous episode toward the end when I had a rant about disillusionment and how we're way more outnumbered than I had ever thought. It was because of those numbers. It was like 90% of the people were supporting more government intervention. You know, like yeah. we are more vastly outnumbered than I ever thought. Well, you do have to take those numbers with a little grain of salt though, because you're not hearing the questions that they were being asked like the 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 chances you know the uh the outcome of a poll can vastly hinge on how you ask that question yeah yeah i can't think of a good answer or example right now but you know what i'm talking about yeah yeah you could you could say well if the question is do you think the government should have more power and control in order to uh, eliminate this kind of problem yeah people will be like yeah they'll say yeah because they want to solve the problem you know it's like if the government will solve the problem, then yeah, I'm for more government to solve the problem. Right. Yeah. They're baking into the cake to solve the problem. <laughs> yes. You know, in fact, I, I mean, I've had this argument before with the, with regard to some issues uh, locally. And it's like, well, change the question to if the free market could uh, do a better job of uh, dealing with the coronavirus, should we allow for more free market activity? Well, then you probably still get 90% say yes, because they want that same outcome. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I want to say there was an episode, it might have been Freeman Beyond the Wall, where there was um, a pollster, somebody who actually writes these polls for, for a living or the questions for a living. And he was like, yeah, I can get you whatever answer you want. I just phrase the question a different way. I can get this polls to say whatever you want it to say. You just pay me enough money and I'll do it. So yeah, yeah I don't know if it was Freeman. I think I saw, it might have been the same. You might have seen the same thing, but I think it was like a Democratic operative at the time who was talking about, yeah, he was like a pollster for, I don't know, the DNC or somebody. But yeah, I know what you're talking about, Dan. Yeah. And it makes sense. I mean, I, I've ranted ad nauseum about uh, statistics and and giving the state some kind of like semblance of somewhere to direct resources. Like the census is a great example, and they they promote it as such. They're like, oh yeah, you know, answer these questions, and we'll make sure that your state and your county and your area gets enough resources for all of this federal money that's going to come your way. And I'm like, no, no, I don't want you guys to know shit. I don't want you to think you know what you're doing because <laughs> you don't. And every ten years, you think every ten years 
is is really going to give you re a significant amount of data to to make such decisions? I mean, it's ridiculous. Yeah. I've also been get getting threatening letters from them saying that it's required by law. And if I don't re reply, then apparently they can come and throw me in jail. Yeah, I've gotten that letter. Yeah. I mean, um, doesn't that mean they already know I'm here? Yeah. <laughs> You're looking for him. You found him. You know, yes. I incriminate myself every year to the IRS. Uh, I divulge my books to, I mean, you guys know everything. So uh, plus, hey, hey, boys at the NSA, you guys are listening right now. Uh, welcome. Welcome. Thank you for being part of our uh, shadow listenership. Uh, you already know all this stuff. Uh, so. <laughs> But yeah, and and it's it's weird because they they make it sound like it's well because it's authorized by the Constitution or whatever. As I'm a Lysander Spooner man on this, uh, it, it has no bearing on no legitimate bearing or no moral bearing on me. Uh, but because it happens to be listed in there, they say, well, you're required to because you were born or something. I don't even know. Um, but we should be talking about this movie. I'm sorry, I've been ranting. I feel like I've been ranting for like 20 minutes. Uh, barely talking and about you're, you're all fired up, man. The world is going to hell in a handbasket, and you're all excited about it. I can see you're a collapsitarian. Well, you know, I oh, look. I gotta say one thing. Uh, after I got done with my hike, you know, and all the coronavirus stuff was happening, first thing I did was watch World War Z so I could feel better. <laughs> not that bad. <laughs> I heard we're not all sleeping on staircases yet, so I think there's time if we get enough people out there, you let them well, listen. In Don't. fact, one of the questions I have about this movie is that it seems quite unsustainable. I mean, isn't, I mean, we are looking at a snapshot view of this little world, but it seems to me that what's going to happen is everybody is going to die. I mean, it's, it's, it's not a sustainable, uh, you know, system the way they have it, the way they have it presented in the movie. Yeah. If you're getting all your protein from dead people, is it enough to feed everybody? I don't know. And that's only once a week. Yeah. Yeah, wouldn't that be like a perpetual motion machine if you could get something like that to work like, you know, not in a, like a small scale, but like in a social systems kind of way? Like you're going to use up the energy of expired people or people have been scooped up by by the snow uh, snow plows and shoved into the trash compactor. Turned There's into... definitely a lot of usable energy lost in all of that manufacturing process that you're not being put back into. So, yeah, I think you're. You're going to lose out eventually. Yeah. Now, were they just using people who were like caught in protest and also those who went to the, you know, Dr. Kevorkian, um, mellow music and uh, panoramic uh, cinema screen deathbed uh, scene stuff to like turn those people into food? I think so. I, I don't think it was anybody else, was it? I mean, he originally he was at the end. He was kind of afraid that people would be being grown for the express purpose of being turned into Soylent Green. But at the moment, it's just. People are dying eventually, and so you might as well or, eat them. Or protesting. Well, and yeah. I didn't. I didn't necessarily think that the protesters were going to be killed. I mean, the one guy got killed, of course, but it's like, well, they scoop them up, they take them away, and presumably they let them loose again. Yeah. So, what did you guys think of the ultimate point of the film? Like, as it a huge moral outrage? It's it's definitely some fraud, but it's not like they're going out and murdering people, and then they're also providing this service. And people like Soylent Green. People like it. They love it. So well, it's sort they're of not, like, they're not clamoring to know what's in it. Apparently, sort of like the situation with uh, Snowpiercer, you know, where they're providing these protein blocks that are made out of this endless supply of cockroaches that are apparently on this train. Uh, but they are billing this as something else. At least protein blocks. It's like, well, it technically is a protein block. I mean, it just is bug protein. Um, this they're saying is this uh, plankton stuff, and. I, it, it took me a while to kind of figure this out, but apparently the the books are such a rare commodity, and and because they weren't um, cataloged, they were sort of off off um, 
what's what's the word they were they were not like officially recognized and these were ocean studies oceanographic studies that were saying like hey the harvesting of plankton is no longer going to be sustainable so we're going to need to find another source for creating uh this food protein and so then the governor santini uh found um i guess another way i mean was this all just just within this new york uh state and city kind of as their solution to Mad Max or was, cause, cause they don't mention, I mean, they sort of mention the outside world. They say, well, there are farms out there, but they're like heavily guarded because um, furniture girl is like, Hey, run away with me. Let's leave the city. The city is like terrible. Let's go somewhere outside of the city and like live happily. And he's like, nah, you know, like I don't want to go. It's, it's all overly defended. We can't leave anyway. But I, I felt like Heston, because he grew up in the city, and had never known anything outside the city. Like Saul makes mention of, he's never known what good food, what real food was like. So we're to believe that Heston, who's probably in his 40s in this movie, is a much younger guy, and he's never seen anything outside. So he just has this, like his world is the city, and anything outside of that is sort of unimaginable. But it could have been that, you know, outside of this area, it was actually pleasant. Who knows? Yeah, well, there's all kinds of them. Go ahead. Go ahead. He did imply that you could go to another city, but he said there wasn't any point to it. And I think it was really the whole world. I don't know if it was the whole world. Uh, somebody says that uh, Soylent controls half the world's food supply. So I don't know if that means that it's like the whole world is kind of organized as a single kind of government, or if at least most of the food comes from them and then there's some other sources of food. I mean, there must be sources of fresh food, right? Because we see that in the in a couple of scenes. So it seems to me like, the, you know, to get to your question about earlier, it seemed to me Soylent Green was uh, pervasive around the world. It wasn't just here in New York City. Right. There were other, there were other Soylents, right? Soylent Orange and Soylent Yellow. And they <laughs> yellow, were, and, yellow and Red. Yeah. And they were like different, allegedly different foods. Uh, they were we vegetable. They were advertised as vegetable protein, yeah. which would be what you do on the farms, right? You're growing. In fact, the, in the book, Soylent stood for soybeans and lentils. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, now, because well, so to they they were doing the soylent green, but only on Tuesdays, uh, and they were doing the other foods. Are we to believe that only soylent green was humans, and the other things were what they said they were, or something other than human? That would be my that would be my conclusion. Yeah, yeah. Otherwise, the film doesn't answer the question, which would be kind of annoying. Like soylent green is humans, and soylent yellow is puppy dogs. Yeah, <laughs> I guess or, that would be kind of a shocker. Well, so what do you guys think of um, the cops situation? So Chuck Heston is this um, kind of almost homeless guy who happens to be a cop who has Saul, who is a book to help him. And I thought that meant like bookie, but I maybe upon further reflection, it meant like a researcher or somebody who could find records for you to help with investigations. But it almost felt like they were... Um, operating almost on the level of private investigators with a sort of structure of a reporting structure kind of behind the scenes. It's, it felt really weird, you know? Well, he certainly was, uh, I mean, he was a, like a substitute for a computer today, right? I mean, they didn't have computers really back then. So you're right. This, this guy is the, uh, the researcher. Every cop has to have his own researcher. Otherwise he can't find out information. Uh, but it just, uh, the, the way in which the corruption was systemic, it didn't matter if it was uh, Heston or the guy from the waste disposal or the lieutenant or somebody else. It's like everybody sort of tolerates this corruption in order to survive. 
yeah, even the cleanup guys who came to the apartment to to pick up the um the dead guy, uh, Heston had to pay them off, like their little piece of the action. I'm not sure why that exactly was. I mean, was he paying them a tip to actually do their job, or <laughs> or to look the other way when he was robbing the place blind? I think it was like a body fee. It's like, well, we could have just done something else with the body, but you know, it's going to go to waste disposal, and then we're going to get refunded, or we're going to get paid for that, and then they're going to get their cut of that payment. Okay, all right. So, so there's sort of like dealing in. Uh, you get a piece of this because we're going to get a little bit of money for it. So, thanks for giving us the the call to like pick it up. So it's like a um like in Seinfeld when Newman and and uh, Kramer took the mail truck of bottles to Michigan to get the ten cent refund. <laughs> they ended up spending more in gas. <laughs> well, and also there was a scene where people were lined up for death benefits, and so I mean I presume if there's a death benefit for benefit for everybody, so that was like two hundred seventy dollars, and so that means okay, this guy has no next of kin or anybody to claim the death benefit, so that presumes that these guys can claim it and then they can split it up among themselves. Yeah. So that, that, that brings me back to like this just overall situation there. They had a UBI, they had death benefits. They had um, 20 million people out of work. It was hard to get groceries, get meat, get real eggs. Uh, and you needed a permit to be out on the street. I mean, it's literally today, at least in, in yeah. places like New York and Seattle. Yeah. Even the guys in the supermarkets are like behind a cage. Now we have them behind plexiglass screens, but Close enough. Yeah. And I had thought that, you know, when they showed the meat, that it was going to be revealed later that that was not cow meat. But I don't think that was ever brought up. No, it was supposed to show how amazing, how far they had fallen, that if one slice of beef was that prized. Okay. Yeah. So I, I sort of like the the reputation of this movie preceded it. So in watching it, I'm like, oh, shit, that's human meat. <laughs> <laughs> no. it, is, it is kind of funny about that. You don't, I mean, the whole movie, everybody that knows it, you know, knows the whole Soylent Green is people, but that isn't really revealed explicitly until like the last five minutes. Yeah. It just mostly plays out as kind of a crime drama in a dystopian world. Yeah. I mean, in a way I kind of liked, like if you don't know going into it, uh, cause they, they do conceal what it is. Like Saul is whispering and then the audible, uh, you know, the, the sound goes out, drops out, but we know Heston hears it. So, and then the, um, there was another moment where, I think they told Saul, the the um the old the the elders, yeah. and he gets this like horrified look. It's like, oh, I can't believe they would do that. But you as an audience don't know yet. So I guess they're kind of playing up to that big payoff at the end, which is like a top one hundred line of film history. <laughs> it's people. So they also had the the priest, right? Because the priest is saying, you know, that you know he's all out of it. He says it's because he learned the truth. But then that's all we hear. That's all we know about that. Yeah. And then he, and then he gets shot. Now I, I wonder, he must've had other things going on, right? Like he wasn't just traumatized from this or no, was I that think what... he was just traumatized from that. Cause the other, everything else is just normal standard, you know, occurrence. It seems like. Yeah. This movie, this movie really is a very similar to Snowpiercer. I don't know if you've seen that movie, Dennis, but we just did it recently. And I've seen it twice and I didn't like oh. it either time, but. Oh, okay. Well, <laughs> but I look forward to hearing your take. Well, in that movie, like the the thing that keeps everybody alive is child labor. And in this movie, the thing that keeps everybody alive is eating other dead bodies. But each time it's revealed in this horrific, huge, immoral thing. And I'm just curious if it really is, because it's an innovation that is keeping everybody alive. So, I mean, uh, clearly it's immoral in that it's fraud, but 
how how mad can everybody be at the end of the day? It's like, well, we've been eating people for the past couple months, and I really like it, and it's keeping my children alive. So, eh, I don't know. I just don't. I just don't see the big outrage. In well, in fact, I, I put down some notes here too about that. It's like, well, the we don't really know how it's going to end. The idea is that the information is supposed to get back to this uh, exchange, whatever it was called, uh, the exchange, and that they were going to inform some quote unquote council of nations, which we don't know what that means either. And the presumption is that somehow they put a stop to it. I mean, I mean, that has to be the conclusion you draw that they're trying to find out because they want to put a stop to it. But if they put a stop to it, there isn't enough food to feed everybody. So a lot of people are going to have to die anyway. And so, you know, to your point there, it it's more than a little problematic trying to figure out how how this really gets resolved after the movie is over. Yeah, that's sort of I, I, I think what you're alluding to, Robert, is uh, Ed Harris's character. He's actually creating a situation where the people in the back of the of the car, the, the final car on the train can actually live, can actually survive and not resort to cannibalism. And so they should in a weird way, be appreciative of being alive. I mean, sure, he does other nefarious and terrible things to them. So he's not like this saint or anything. But had he not stepped in and provided what he provided, they would all be dead. Similarly in this, because the plankton is no longer abundant, there is no other source for this food. So had this not occurred, then people would have died as a result of starvation. So, I mean, in a way, yeah, they didn't like, they weren't out forthright with what it is they're eating but at the same time you know the the alternative was what well ultimately the best alternative is to open it up to the market to solve the problem but apparently this is some sort of totalitarian communist regime where you have bread lines and rations and that sort of thing so but yeah in this world that is presented what is the alternative a whole bunch of people dying so because you need protein to live yeah you need, and, you need protein and, is required for cells to reproduce and you got to keep doing that so and if more people died then you'd have even more resources just going to waste. And what, you know, what's the bigger waste, like spoiling a resource or not using it at all? You know, in fact, I was, uh, one of the things I was wondering about is there clearly are some rich people because we see Joseph Cotton and there's some people that do pretty well because uh, we see some of them in the specialized services like uh, Chuck Connors being the uh, buddy, bodyguard, uh, even the uh, the manager of the apartment building. And, and I was thinking, well, why aren't they just outright killing people? Because it's a drain on resources and it's got to be keeping their standard of living down. And all you these people sleeping the, uh, on the street aren't contributing yeah. to their standard of living at all. I was going to say, you could start with all the staircase people. Yes. Yes. There's a guy at the top of the staircase with like an AK 47 or something, you know, guarding the apartments. Yeah. I actually kind of like that part. Like they're doing their own, you know, internal like building security, you know, that part was yeah. good. Made sense. But yeah, you're right. Like, like those, it seemed like nobody was uh, very productive at all. I think there were, what, 40 million people in New York City and 20 million were out of work. So it, it was a, a very much a, a class warfare um, kind of vibe to this as well. You know, people connected to the governor and people connected to the corporation were pretty well off. And they were hiding this like evil secret. And it seemed like a few people were kind of in on it. Um, the um, what was his name? Charles, the, the doorman or the security guy at the at the building. Uh, he was going around hitting women. Um, in getting away with it. Uh, Chuck Heston was hitting a woman and getting away with it. It seemed like in the 70s, I guess that was more, um, you well, know. You can hit furniture, Daniel. It's not a big deal. <laughs> I Sean can punch Connery, a couch uh, right now and no one's going to freak out about it. My cousin punched a couch. He broke his hand. Well, that, I guess, well, that will happen, but he didn't get in trouble for it. No, yeah, exactly, yeah. Well, okay, so we've got 20 million unemployed right now, right? 
here in the United States, currently speaking. And that's due to government dictate, right? That's what's stopping the market from functioning properly. So there's probably something in this film that's stopping these people from functioning, the market from functioning properly. Because you can't just have 20 people just laying around doing nothing, wanting to do nothing. Unless they're, I mean, unless it's, like you said, it's some sort of UBI. But even the UBI is horrific. It's like, what, you have to still have to sleep on a staircase somewhere or the floor of a church. It's not like you're even getting your thousand dollars a month or if you're getting your thousand dollars a month it's not paying for anything yeah and there were all these lines to get rations and then they um they ran out and had the riot right because that one woman came out and was like i only got like a pound and a half or a kilo and a half of uh whatever was on offer and that was the last of it and then the police shut it down and then everyone freaked out i mean it's like bernie's paradise right there it, it seemed to me the the only only thing we saw produced was food you know it was the soylent stuff and then we saw the fresh food but we actually didn't see anything else that represented current production. Um, we saw the video game, but uh, the video game was portrayed as being an, an antique uh, that somehow he had picked up. So after I was kind of thinking about it, it's like, yeah, the, the only thing they're producing is food. And that's how they can sort of make the system work where everybody's unemployed or so many people are unemployed because there isn't anything else for them to buy, right? If you think about uh, Charlton Heston's apartment, uh, there was... There was nothing in there that was new. Everything was older stuff that was, you know, being kept useful by whatever activities he and Edward G. Robinson were able to do. Yeah, so they you were- had service people. You had the cops who were providing a service. You had the grocer. You had the garbage men, but not a whole lot of other jobs to be had. Well, you had the pastor guy. Yeah, so they were living on on older technology, sort of like Cuba. They'd have cars from the fifties, keep them running for yeah. like fifty years, sixty years. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So there was uh, another thing I was going to mention. Oh, so I didn't get the the plot as far as the not the plot of the movie, but like the the dastardly plot to um, off this Simonson guy. So he had a bodyguard who was in on it. Why didn't the bodyguard just whack him? Why did they have to hire this other guy who got into this broken vehicle to get hired to get a tire iron to like then break into the building and then the guy conveniently, the bodyguard conveniently leaves with the furniture to go to the grocery shopping so that this hired assassin can go in and whack Simonson. Like, why go through all the trouble? If if Santini, the governor, is like, wants this done, why doesn't he just tell the bodyguard to do it? Or why don't they just pick up Simonson, you know, using um, the police force or whatever? You know, like, if they're in a totalitarian state, why can't he just totalitarianly take care of this rather than have this facade of a break-in and a robbery? I guess there's still some ideas of liberty and justice still in place, I guess. I guess it's just showing that the society hasn't deteriorated to that point yet, I guess. It sure seems like there's plenty of authoritarianism, totalitarianism going on to justify what you're talking about. I don't know. I think they would just have disappeared him or suicided him, you know, like make him have a heart attack or whatever. Or just got to be a crime to investigate, Daniel. What else (laughs) is Chuck Kessin going to do for an hour and a half? (laughs) Yeah, I think that's probably just the reason it, that uh, you're right. It, there was a, a lot of different ways they could have done that where presumably it wouldn't have been an issue, but then you don't have a movie. Yeah, yeah. And I guess the uh, the hit called out on, on Chuck Heston there, which was kind of laughably uh, carried out. Um, I don't know. It's like all the action scenes were, uh, the action yeah. was very, very good. <laughs> and I, is that just a product of the of cinema at the time? I mean, is it all and low budget and yeah, bad, just bad lighting, bad cinematography, bad action, bad choreography. It was bad. Everything bad, Daniel. I would Sorry. say it was good for its time. You know, at the time, that's the way that's the way movies were made. We've gotten so much better. 
not to say that all movies are good now, but just in the terms of the way they look. The way they're I think part of it is the filming. I, I remember watching something once where uh, somebody was amazed about Star Trek, about how, oh, back in the original series, when you had to punch somebody, you had to give these big roundhouse punches because then it looks good on the, the video. Whereas today you don't see that because it doesn't really look good at all. Yeah. Yeah. hundred percent. Yeah. That, that wild stylized wacky fighting is gone and it's a thing of the past and it's a good thing because it's ridiculous and no one would actually do it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, maybe so- you see people do it in like YouTube videos or fighting on the street videos or something, but it's people that don't know how to fight. You talking about bum fights, Robert? Uh, just YouTube, Daniel, internet.com. You know, you've seen it. Okay. Yeah. So they, they could have had a whole social media empire with all these uh, homeless people in this, in this movie, like doing yeah, stuff. Yeah, they could have. Those people would have done all kinds of crazy shit for a few bucks. Yeah, I don't know. I feel like maybe I'm being insensitive. Um, so I'm curious. I'll direct this to you, Dennis. Why does this have such a cultural phenomena around it? Like everyone knows what this movie is, even though it's not a very good movie. Like what is what's the what's the thing that's making it stick around? And what at the time when it came out was it uh, attempting to do culturally? I mean, it seems like it's right. pushing uh, environmentalist agenda and the um, class warfare kind of thing, but why did it stick around so much? Well, I, I think it's, it's. I mean, really the foundation is the Malthusian nightmare, the overpopulation. And I think at that time, you know, we were kind of ripe for, in fact, I was I was hoping to, to take a closer look at the book, but uh, just haven't had the uh, the time to go back and, and review a lot of it. But his, uh, the author's opening uh, comment is that it was all informed by Malthus, that it was all about Gee, you know, the population grows at uh, geometric rates, but the food supply grows at uh, arithmetic rate. And so we're going to end up with this problem of overpopulation and not enough uh, food to feed people. And, you know, that was the the foundation of his story and the foundation of this this movie. And we certainly have seen that fear uh, expressed in other ways. Uh, We mentioned Ehrlich and the uh, population bomb was all about overpopulation. The uh, Chinese and their one child policy for whatever it was, 20 years or, or something, uh, was related to that as well. And today, I would say, I think, I want to say, I think we've, we've passed that. There still are the, uh, the fringe, I would say, that still go on after population as being a problem. But I think most people kind of dismiss that now. Uh, but that's because, you know, 50, 60 years ago, people were talking about it then, and it wasn't true then. And it's still not true now. So I would say it's, it's the Malthusian thing that really captured people's attention, and and to some extent still is, you know, kind of, uh, you know, kind of interesting to to think about. I was I was trying to think about whether there were any other movies that were quite like that, where the the premise was overpopulation, and I wasn't really coming up with much. And I mean, I've, I've you know, we see some dystopian futures. Um, I was thinking about Babylon AD, if uh, that shows up on your list of things to do sometime. Uh, and it's like, okay, we see that, but it's not like an overpopulation problem. It's something else. It's a war. It's a pestilence or whatever, whatever's going on. But this one is kind of unique in that regard. Dennis, are you familiar with the Marvel movies? Well, when, uh, what's his name? Thanos killed half of the people and said, well, that was the argument. That's the argument. That's, That's absolutely and, the and argument. And I saw that. I haven't seen all of the movies, but I saw those last couple, and and I said, oh, there's uh, there's Malthus again, and you know, and maybe he's right about it, maybe he's not, but uh, that was kind of the interesting, the interesting justification, and clearly portrayed as the bad guy, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, no, he's portrayed as a madman for sure for for believing in Malthus, which is refreshing. Although a lot of people online thought, you know, Thanos was right. There was like a hashtag movement. Thanos was right. Well, I have people right now saying saying that this shutdown is great for the earth. You know, like, oh, you know, there's no pollution in India. Now you can see the Himalayas again. And, uh, you know, this this would be great, you know, having all these people like not be industrial and and whatnot. But well, let's just all go back to the land, Daniel. It worked out in Cambodia. I don't know what the problem is. I'll go agrarian, you know, but yeah. And uh, Logan's Run was another movie that was a population one, like anyone Mm -hmm. over Uh, population control over 25, right? Uh, Was it 25 or 30? I want to say maybe it was 30. It's well behind, you know, at least anyways in the past for me. So I don't know, whatever it is. Yeah. We're on, we're on borrowed time if, if we're in Logan's run here. <laughs> no, we all renewed in Carousel. That's what happened. Well, maybe it's worth just revisiting exactly why Malthus is retarded. Um, Malthus didn't take into, like these lefties always take the world as it is, like a snapshot moment. They never like understand things change over time and technology gets better and innovation happens. And every human being that is somehow a problem for population is also an economic actor that drives down prices, is also an innovator that can create products that will improve everybody's lives and create more food out of less space and resources. So it doesn't take into account any of that. And to just say that every more when every next person is an increasing problem is just asinine. I mean, how can you look at the world today and then look at the world 100 years ago and say that we're in a worse situation? We're, we're demonstrably vastly wealthier ever the standard of living is just ridiculously higher compared to 100 years and that's so due the, to innovation and wealth creation there's a recent change through dip. government action daniel <laughs> yes there's a recent dip uh, yeah and that is bolsters my argument for getting the government out of the market daniel i concur Government apologist. Doctor, do you concur? Uh, There's another aspect to what Robert's saying, too, and that is, I think even in 1973, not enough data had been collected to show the the correlation between wealth and population that uh, and birth, uh, you know, birth rates that as we've gotten wealthier, the birth rates gone down. Uh, And so when one looks at that, you also kind of throw Malthus out the window and say, well, no, the, the richer we are. I mean, his premise, in fact, his premise is turned upside down in this movie. His premise is that if our standard of living goes up above whatever is barely needed to, uh, to sustain ourselves, then we have more kids. And then having more kids puts a drain on resources and it lowers our standard of living back down to the, uh, the bare minimum. And then if our standard of living goes up again, you know, if we sort of you know, follow Robert's uh, argument about the economic progress, it goes up again, uh, it's going to be self-defeating because then we're going to have more kids again, and then that's going to pull us back down. But in the movie, that's not what's driving this. Uh, in the movie, you just have this, you know, huge population, you know, according to Malthus, it's like, well, their, their population is going to be stable at whatever the bare subsistence is. And yet, as I look at the movie, uh, they're they're not going to survive for very long, you know, at that level. Yeah, with half the population not doing a damn thing to produce mm-hmm. anything. Yeah, it's like a, a Snowpiercer situation where most of the people are in the back just sitting around doing nothing but eating all day. I mean, maybe you got this. Maybe you got this source of infinite cockroaches somewhere in the uh, in the universe in the sunlit green universe. I don't know. They could take advantage of that. All right. Well, uh, this has been a good discussion so far. And, and unfortunately, we're almost at, at our time. So are there any final notes that anyone wants to bring up before we 
do final summary and review and then uh, potentially some Kathleen Turner Overdrive available for our Patreon supporters at lastnighters.com slash Patreon. Well, it, it's, uh-oh, Dennis is muted. He looks like he's trying to talk. Yes, sorry. Uh, yeah, there were a couple of things I wanted to uh, just throw out there. Again, it's one of the last minute things. One is that there's a Marxist uh, element to this too that's not really developed in the movie, but uh, Soylent controls half the world's food supply, apparently controls a lot more than just the food supply. And how did they get to be big? We know that they bought out uh, Simonson's company and it just seemed like a Marxist story for you know, the evolution of economies into giant monopolies and they get bigger and bigger and bigger. It's it's a little nuanced, but it's but it's in, in the movie. And then of course the other thing that we didn't really talk about uh, at all is just the assisted suicide. The the thing with Edward G. Robinson going into the the, the place at the end. Uh, you know, for us it's all because he's horrified to learn about the Soylent Green. But you know, it's uh, it's another interesting uh, topic, of course, for discussion. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, should there be suicide? Should it be state controlled? You know, uh, there's uh, a lot of things going on there. Yeah, with the incentive structure, it'd be a little bit. I mean, I'm all for voluntarily ending your own life. You are of social ownership. You can decide what to do with your body. But there definitely are some perverse incentives if this company is selling your carcass to Soylent or, you know, selling it back to the people. Well, I don't even know how this pay structure is happening. I don't know where the money is going if they're just giving the food away and rations. I don't know. It's all unexplained, but yeah, it seemed weird because it was like a super nice place and a super nice way to go. You would think that they would charge you money. So you'd have to save up money to be able to do something like that. (laughs) You know, go to the Disneyland of suicides. Yeah, it really did seem like that. And like part of the ceremony was seeing the earth as it was before man, the garbage can just defiled it. You know, you could see nature and animals and listen to classical music and, and I don't know, drink whatever uh, Kool-Aid he drank because um, they, they had him drink like this red drink. And then and then that was what did it. Right. Like yeah. it just took a little bit of time from there. So it was right. Jim Jonesy. Yeah, that was my impression. All right. Well, very, very good. Uh, very good discussion. And thank you for bringing up the point, Dennis. Uh, they also uh, seem to, to miss out that. Um, there's just like that one corporation that bought another and then there's one other corporation, but it all seems to be kind of tied to the government and it's not clear who influences who like is Santini in charge or is the Soylent corporation kind of calling the shots because Simonson who was on the board, he knew that he was um, going to be taken out. Like he kind of accepted his fate because he was, I don't know, upset about it, depressed about it. And he was, he knew he would talk or whatever. So he kind of understood why they were doing it, but it wasn't clear like who was really calling the shots in this totalitarian hellscape of New York city, 2022. Yes, indeed. Yeah. But you know, Santini and Cuomo seem kind of similar in some ways, throw that out there. But uh, uh, Robert <laughs> and he was actually running for office. We saw some uh, campaign posters. Uh, we didn't see anybody else's campaign posters. So I don't know if it was sort of a Saddam Hussein kind of election, but mm, 99% of the vote, baby. Super popular, right? Man of the people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yay. Democracy. All right, well, let's get into a final summary and review before we get into some uh, Kathleen Turner Overdrive. So I'll start with you, Robert. Score one okay. to ten. All right, well, it speaks to the filmmaker's opinion of mankind that they don't even bother to explain the reason why the world goes to hell. They just kind of show these pictures in a sequence and like just leaving it to the audience's understanding that, well, yeah, I mean, that's the natural progression. That's what's going to happen. You don't even have to explain it. People are just like, oh, yeah, I'm totally on board with this happening. But I think if you have... I think our perspective, I mean, I could see it going this bad, but only through force and coercion. I don't think any kind of voluntary world would end up like this because you have all kinds of needs that aren't being met by the market. 
you've got just all these people. I mean, housing is one of them. Goods and services are non-existent. Um, I mean, you just go down the list of pretty much everything. All they had was a little bit of food and these crappy old, it's like, yeah, Havana entered the embargo. So it's clearly the market is not operating. There's all kinds of perverse incentives and force and coercion happening that the movie, I think, just takes for granted. I don't think they, they bother to try and explain that or that that is the cause. They just take it as man is bad, man has destroyed the world, and there's this too many people, and they're all causing too many problems. So, eh, it doesn't really work for me. I would have wrecked, I would have wrecked a better explanation as to why this, this, this world exists. But I, as a rule, I do enjoy dystopian sci-fi movie just just for the silliness and the silly ideas that people have about the future it really shows that we just can't predict the future nobody can nobody no one nobody has all the 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 information to predict basically what the market's going to do next year let alone 20 30 40 50 years from now so um it shows to our hopefully it brings people more humility in uh in their totalitarian instincts to tell other people what to do but uh, for this film, um, you know, it's a movie. It is definitely a movie. And Chuck Hessen, I can say, was definitely in it. And there was a woman that was in this furniture that he just kind of walked in and he's like, well, we're having sex now. So just lay down. I don't think that that's how that works. Chuck Heston, maybe in your world, that's normal. I don't know. But um, I don't know. The story didn't really grip me too much. It was kind of weird. The acting was, you know, Chuck Heston ish um there's not to say that there isn't good actors in the film i just don't think that they were really written really well um the 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 furniture lady i thought was pretty good um i could definitely kind of she felt like a real human being for the most part um in this kind of weird society but um i don't know the the, the reveal wasn't wasn't huge in my mind i mean obviously i'm not seeing this for the i'm seeing it for the first time but i've already known what the uh, the reveal is so I don't know if it really plays. I don't know what it's like to have watched it the first time in, you know, 1973. So uh, for me watching this now, I'd say this is like a five. It's it's fun in kind of a schlocky way, but it's not like a, a, a great example of the genre. All right, Robert, thank you for that. And, and did you find in watching it that that you were seeing some parallels to like present day, just recent present day? Well, to take it to the comedic extreme. But yeah, I mean, there's some stuff. I know that you were talking about. I, I would agree. I, I don't think we're all sleeping in staircases and wearing bell bottoms just yet, but maybe that could get to that point. It's making a comeback, it seems like. I mean, it is getting to be summertime, so I will be sweatier. And neckerchiefs are pretty hot, stylish kind of look. So I don't well, know. Well, you got to be wearing a, a mouth cover in these days, in certain mm -hmm. areas. Yep, that's true. Some guy in uh, Philly got like ripped off of a bus because he wasn't wearing something. Yeah, so. Really? Yeah. Wow. Manhandled by like 10 cops. Pretty cool, huh? Did they give him COVID? I don't know. Well, I, I love how when, when the cops bust somebody for, you know, breathing, they'll uh, they'll not be wearing protective measures and they won't be <laughs> recognizing the uh, safe space or whatever. You know, they just violate it. Um, but, you know, well, there's a special people. They're rules special for class. Rules and haircuts. For rules the... for haircuts for me. That's right. <laughs> All right. Well, Dennis, uh, let's get your summary and uh, your score, please. Well, I uh, just to go back. I mean, this is the uh, a great example of the Malthusian nightmare. Uh, I think what's to me kind of interesting, if you can think your way through it, obviously this doesn't make much sense. Uh, the movie is a low budget uh, uh, movie from many many years ago, 
but I think that uh, parts of it uh, you know are really quite compelling. Um, the uh, the opening uh, of the opening credits where they've got the kind of old timey music and the old photographs, and then that evolves into more frantic music and uh, more pictures of what's going on now, where things are crowded. That they they do a pretty good job of of painting that dystopian future. Uh, I like the uh, even at the and at the end credits they use all the music from the uh, the chamber where they uh, commit suicide. They have all the bright colors and they got that that uh, more lighter classical music going on, which I think makes for a nice nice bookend in terms of the uh, the the filming itself. Uh, some of the scenes are are really great. The the scene of uh, Edward G. Robinson and Charlton Heston eating the the real food that goes on and on and on maybe a little long but uh but it's it really immerses us in this notion of what it's like to live in this world that's so deprived of what we take for granted uh in terms of our of our standard of living so i i really like that i i i like dystopian movies even though i think they're all wrong because they discount the the market and they and they make this seem like some kind of a market problem and, and that's that's a flaw. But for some reason, I'm still attracted to them because I find them fascinating in terms of how they paint these uh, terrible pictures of what the future is going to uh, going to look like. Um, in in terms of uh, like a, a score, this is this has been one of my favorite movies. I have a copy of it. I watch it every so often. Um, and so I'm I'm going to go with the uh, the sort the sort of ranking of the the fact that this is the what I think it's like the 71st or 72nd uh, most uh, popular, well-known line from any movie in America, and and I'm going to give it a uh, a 7.1. All right. Well, thank you very much for that, and and I'll agree with you that uh, it does seem like all the dystopian movies, as entertaining as they often are, there's always some flaw where like okay, they have to like ignore this <laughs> this economic law or this fact of reality to make their uh, their problem actually exists, which is kind of bizarre because like if you read the news or watch the news these days, it seems like we're always a hair's breadth from like total disaster all the time. So you would th- you'd think that like you wouldn't need to come up with a story where you have to assume away some uh, some flaw to actually make it function, to actually have dystopia kind of exist. Um, so, yeah, it's just kind of a, a weird thing to to realize, because in a way we are sort of in a dystopia, even though, Robert, you said that we're living far better than uh, human history has ever lived. And that's a point, uh, hearkening back to what I was telling our, our kids growing, or, you know, that we're telling them how great they have it. Um, but there's also the biggest surveillance state ever. There's the biggest governments ever. There's the most, uh, destruction, uh, the most war, you know, all of these things. Um, and, and they're more like covert wars. They're, they're off book wars. There's not officially wars, but there's people being killed, uh, all over the world due to, you know, military interventions, uh, and, and other government interventions. So, I don't know. It's like, in a way, we are living both very, very well, but also in a somewhat dystopian, um, brave new world, kind of like where we're sort of, uh, we're sort of acquiescing to the violence. Like we're, we're kind of okay with it. We call it something else. So it's, it's a little bit of Huxley. It's a little bit of Orwell and it's a little bit of, um, Rand, you know, Ayn Rand with the uh, 20th century motors and, and the, uh, the Alice Shrugdy, uh, government interveners in things. So anyway, it just feels like we're kind of like in this mashup of all this dystopian stuff, but there's always a flaw in their, their logic. Anyway, back to this movie. I enjoyed this. Uh, and yes, Chuck Heston, I think it comes back to his like probably more of a stage trained actor. It just seems like the way of how filming was done back then. And 
I mean, by the seventies, it probably had changed a bit, but as we saw in the robe, you know, it's very much like you're trying to project, uh, this performance out so that the back rows can see and see what, and understand what's going on. It's still kind of like old dog, new tricks kind of thing, you know, like they're still doing that even in the seventies, even though there's a lot of close up shots and things like that. So I think that's just part of what Chuck Heston was doing. Uh, he was a big star back then. I think that, uh, the movie was actually pretty, pretty good. Uh, once I kind of understood what was going on and it, the, the reputation did proceed it. So the, the, the ending was sort of spoiled for me, but it also led me to, to think things were what they weren't, um, in watching it. Like I thought the meat was human meat, but you know, that, that might've made it more interesting. Like make it a silence of the lamb slash Jeffrey Dahmer, um, caper instead of, you know, some fraud on, on what the food is actually made out of, but, uh, still a good movie. Glad I watched it. I, I can see why it has sort of, um, become indelible in, in cultural history. And uh, it was a nice piece of propaganda as far as like that opening scene, like like Dennis, you were saying. That was actually pretty powerful seeing uh, the images of human civilization um, growing ever more um, crowded and polluting uh, as they advance through the ages. So it did paint a, a pretty uh, powerful image um, leading it in. I, I guess you could call that poisoning the well almost uh, in a certain way where you're like preconditioning like your audience for what's to come. But it, it was a good movie. So I'm going to go with a 6.5 on this one. So uh, do either of you guys have any um, response to anything before we talk about what we're going to be doing next week? I have one more thing I was going to add that I was uh, forgetting about. And that is, in terms of the filming, Edward G. Robinson was apparently almost completely deaf at this time. And so he had to practice his lines with some visual cues. And even if you know that and you watch it, you can't tell that he's not literally responding back and forth with Charlton Heston or the people in the book exchange or anything else, which is, you know, quite, quite phenomenal. Of course, it was his last film. Uh, he, he was in 101 films and and died right after this one was over. Yeah. I was reading that um, he didn't tell anyone that he was dying. I mean, they, yeah. they could probably tell, yeah, he's a very old guy, but uh, he knew that he was a couple of weeks and yeah, you were right. The, the very last scene where he dies in the movie, that was his last on screen moment so mm -hmm. it's very very poignant and uh, he was famous for uh, he was in the ten commandments and he was also uh famous for like gangster movies right like little caesar might have been uh one of them like he's he's um he's one of those Key guys Largo. mimicked a lot uh you, you'll see like characters like have that kind of wise guy kind of caricature voice and that that was his thing right like, yeah i think you're right about that daniel i i don't i remember he's the guy that was always like yeah she that guy yeah yeah, that guy. See? Yeah. Yeah. Get him, yeah boys. You dirty rat. <laughs> All right. I'm well, pretty sure he was the bad guy in Key Largo with Humphrey Bogart. I think you're right about that. Okay. Yeah, we're going to be doing a, a Humphrey Bogart movie uh, pretty soon. We're going to be doing some uh, Casablanca. Not next week, but probably in a couple of months from now. But next week, we are going to have a kick-ass guest. It's uh, Raylene Lightheart coming back on the show. She's from the Blast Off show with Johnny Rocket and Raylene Lightheart. And uh, she's a kick-ass kick -ass guest, so appropriately, we're doing the movie Kick-Ass. Oh, which uh, she said is really fun. I haven't seen it yet, but uh, there's there's been two of them. So maybe I'll try to watch both. But it should be uh, should be an interesting episode. She's always a great guest. And I look forward to that next week. All right. Another superhero film. I'm down. Can't get enough of those. Well, Dennis, uh, thank you so much for recommending this movie and the great discussion. And uh, hopefully you can stick around for a little bit more of the bonus content uh, right after uh, we say goodnight from last night to everyone. This is episode 120 of the show. Lastnighters.com slash 120. And uh, we'll see you guys all next week for Kick-Ass with Raylene Lightheart. So I'll just repeat myself. Good night from last night. <laughs>
All right, and we can continue for a few more minutes on the Actual Anarchy podcast before we uh, actually do slide over into the bonus content. Um, I don't know if you guys have noticed, but the the musical interludes are now longer and and continuous. However, I think they're playing at variable speed. It's like the music kind of plays faster and then it slows down, and that's really weird. Not sure why it does that. So I'll reach out to uh, the tech support on on this platform and see like what's going on with that because that was really weird. It's like the music was like faster. I'm like, oh, I kind of like it faster, and it slows way down. Like, all right, well, this is awkward. Uh, speaking of awkward, I like to save an awkward question for the uh, final moment of the show. So this furniture situation where all these pretty young ladies are like concubines and they're like part of the apartment, like it's a furnished apartment. So it's uh, you rent the place and, and this woman comes along with it and apparently she'll do whatever um, sort of a concubine style. Um, was that like a result of the economic devastation of 20 million people being out of work because the only other women I see in this film are in the crowd and they're like older women who obviously wouldn't be furniture. Um, apparently like living, uh, in a, you know, in a stairwell. Um, do you think that this was the only job that was really available to them because all their other opportunities had been taken away from them? Similar to the Ben Powell argument against, or, uh, how people like will degrade or, or speak ill of sweatshops, but what's the alternative? Hmm. I, I was, it's, that's an interesting angle to take it from. Um, I was thinking about taking it to the, as man, as society degrades, mankind goes to its base instincts where the strong rule over the weak, and then the men would be a more misogynistic type, you know, masculine society, use women as their subservient servant type people who service their needs servicely serviently <laughs> serviously i think that's got some merit too but also like it seems like that era of filmmaking uh hitting women wasn't that big of a deal uh it of course is now <laughs> but uh i, I could kind of see your argument but uh, but i'm i'm looking at more from the economic standpoint because you don't see women in any other uh position but you also don't see a lot of people really having jobs other than well, the food processors and the bodyguard and yeah, there were some women in the service industry um, of taking the old people in to die. Oh, right. Yeah. And we but saw then, the old lady at the uh, Supreme the Exchange. She was like, in fact, uh, what uh, Saul addresses her as your honor, like she's the head of that little group. Yeah, that. And then there are also some some salespeople selling soy or whatever it was in that marketplace. Yeah, just talking that. I, I, I would say that it was, I mean, it's like a ticket out of uh, your terrible life. I mean, maybe it's like a sweatshop, except maybe much better. It's like, well, you can you can live this miserable life in the streets and hope you don't get killed. Uh, or you can live in this nice apartment and you can you know be treated to some nice things. And hopefully you have, you know, someone who's uh, who's going to treat you well. And Joseph Cotton apparently treated her very well. Uh, and it's like, well, that's, usually a, a uh, an out that's uh, available to women as opposed to men right so right. that's you know part of that story and and he does uh, i think Charlton Heston asked her right away whether he he says something about i think he asked her if she's the furniture because maybe it doesn't always have to be the case and then he asked her if she is personal or with a building so there's this idea that maybe she came there with Joseph Cotton because she was his furniture as opposed to the building hiring women, which seemed to be the case for all the other ones that we saw in that one scene. All right, the the meeting, and then uh, Charles went and kind of beat him up. <laughs> yeah, it's like uh, it's mistreating the furniture for sure. Punching the couch. No, they definitely <laughs> they definitely seem to prefer that current situation as opposed to the horrific life of all the other people. So yeah, even we don't really understand 
what the rich people are doing to be rich. I mean, maybe there's the the people, the heads of the company, the few companies, but there's got to be a few more people than that, maybe. Yeah, I mean, Simonson was rich because he worked for Soylent. And then the bodyguard was probably a level or two below that, but still fairly well off because he had his own apartment. He had his own furniture. He could afford the strawberry preserves that were very expensive. I didn't understand why uh, that that woman destroyed them in the incinerator when Heston showed up. I mean, he announced himself as police, but was it like contraband? Was she not supposed to have that? Yeah, I don't think that he bought it. It seemed to me he probably just pilfered it from Simonson. Oh, okay. So I, I think he would be a few more rungs down than that, but but he was better off. He did have the nicer apartment. Okay, so the strawberry preserves would have been evidence that the bodyguard was involved potentially in the the murder, and he was. Mm-hmm. But if, if that much evidence would have implicated him, then Heston stealing a bunch of stuff from there too would have, you know, <laughs> been similar in a way. But anyway, he's just like interesting and and. Um, Cheryl, uh, to your point, Dennis, she was saying that uh, she's been there a long time and she even lies about her age, uh, presumably to be able to stay there longer, because I guess over a certain age, they sort of have an expiration date. And she wanted to stay there in that level of comfort for longer, though the guy who was moving in seemed to be pretty scummy or scuzzy or uh, skeezy. What's the right word? He seemed like, hey, you know, if, if you play your cards right and you like to party, do you like to party? You know, we like girls that like to have a good time. You like to have a good time? Yeah, it seemed just Jeffrey Epstein-esque. Yeah, it yeah. Seemed, seemed a little dirty. <laughs> but she, she was incentivized to lie, to, to present herself as younger. Because even uh, Charles said that her age was, you know, even a higher age. And she's like, well, that makes uh, two of us lying. Mm-hmm. We never got her actual age. Well, she said 21 and she said Charles said 24. Right, yeah. So and I, I think in between there. And I did appreciate that it was like a slur or like a, negative term furniture and they recognize it as such just like a dehumanizing term because heston at one point calls her that and she's like don't talk to me and, and it's also interesting that they could have just used the term whore but then that would have been you know that would have made it totally different for us in terms of sort of responding to it and, and using a term we're not used to you know nobody's used to using that term furniture uh makes us more empathetic certainly towards her right yeah and and, sure. and to that point i think that Another term would already carry some preconceptions. Yeah. Like if they had referred to them as whores or prostitutes, well, most people would think, well, that means that they're, you know, there for an hour or an, an evening instead of, no, they're, they're part of the living part situation. Part of the house. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They come with the house. Furniture seems fairly apt. Yeah. Is it pre-furnished? <laughs> what is a fairly furnished apartment? Do you get like five or six girls? Yeah. I'm just curious. She's only here part of the week. Partially furnished one girl, a couple hours a week. All right. Well, uh, again, a very good discussion and uh, thought I'd save that weird question for the end. And you guys didn't disappoint. So we can just celebrate our misogyny and celebrate the patriarchy here. Uh, on this episode 177 of the show, we'll be back uh, next week with, uh, speaking of patriarchy, uh, the the beautiful uh, kick-ass Raylene Lightheart for the movie Kick-Ass uh, next week. So join us for some uh, Kathleen Turner Overdrive right after this and uh, join us on Patreon and support us in uh, several other ways that Robert likes to list off before we tell you the evening's final thoughts Mm. well i'm glad you'd be thinking about those final thoughts while i mentioned that you can subscribe to us on apple Podcasts, of course or if you're watching this on youtube or the facebook you can subscribe to us on youtube you can share this post around on facebook you can join us on cadre our uh, little private facebook group that's always fun time 
or you could uh, buy a t-shirt from trepster.com or a sticker or any of the other things that they print my weird artwork onto that I appreciate. So yeah, all those ways and many, many more. Uh, most likely the best, most direct way is contributing those Federal Reserve notes that we call dollars on Patreon. The thing responds, but we like it all. I might call them D's uh, in <laughs> reference to this movie because I, I thought that was funny. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you for that, Robert. And yes, please do all those things, everybody. And uh, join us next week for Kick-Ass. Also, if you want to check out Dennis's prior appearance for The Day of the Earth Stood Still, it is episode 129. So actualanarchy.com slash 129. Uh, any final words uh, from you, Dennis, before we uh, end the show here? Sure. I have uh, uh, another observation to make uh, belatedly. And that is when Tab hits Charlton Heston, when they get in the fight in his apartment, uh, Heston says, uh, you'll pay for that. Um, you'll get life. And he says, maybe they'll put, send you to a Soylent factory. So we don't know anything about what the prison world looks like here, but it seems that if you commit a crime, you got to go work for Soylent. Oh, yeah. That is a, a note I missed because I wanted to talk about how there was the uh, disparity between the cop can hit you, can hit a yeah. woman, doesn't matter. But if you defend yourself, you're going away for life. You're in trouble. I think another cool thing to do would be to start a, uh, a little effort uh, to say, okay, if, if you've seen this movie, what music would you pick? And what color would you pick in the assisted suicide place? Yeah, it wouldn't be orange. Although orange is a strong choice. I will say that. I wouldn't have gone with orange, but it's not bad. But that'd be kind of a neat thing to uh, find out what people would pick. Color. That's the last music music and color I want to see before I die. Man, Mm -hmm. yeah, I'll have to think about that one. Well, I already know mine. It's uh, black and gold, baby. And it's (laughs) this music right here. Uh, (laughs) Maximum for you, everyone. Chipmunks. C H I P M U N K. We're the chipmunks. Guaranteed to brighten your day. Do 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 do